Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Sonia Jimmy. Today's episode is a part of our Curbing Corruption series. Curbing Corruption is a Pods audio series unraveling the complexities of corruption and exploring the strategies to combat this global challenge, where PEI colleagues engage in candid conversations with experts, practitioners, and thought leaders who offer insights into the intricate web of corruption, its impact on communities, and the ever-evolving innovations and strategies to measure and combat it. We have PEI colleague Kushi Hung's conversation with Narayan Adhikari on inviting innovation in anti-corruption strategies. Narayan Adhikari is a social entrepreneur and leader in global accountability and governance. He is the co-founder and South Asia representative for Accountability Lab Nepal and runs OpenGov Hub Kathmandu to promote transparency, accountability and civic participation in governance. He is on the board of trustees to Results UK and co-chair for C7 Open and Resilient Society for 2023 and is a strategic advisor to the hashtag Shift the Power Global Movement. Kushi and Narayan discuss anti-corruption strategies with a focus on the role, significance and need for innovation in the field. They explore what it means to embrace innovation in anti-corruption, dissecting the different aspects and challenges in reimagining this pursuit. They also go over revert innovative anti-corruption campaigns led by Narayan himself and discuss their impacts and limitations. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the show, Narayan. How are you feeling today? Feeling good. And thank you, Chrissy, for having me. Yeah. So we're in the third episode of our Curbing Corruption audio series. And in this conversation, we're heading into anti-corruption strategies and particularly focusing on the various ways of inviting innovation in this pursuit. Social efforts in countering corruption are perhaps as old as the issue of corruption itself, but they've rarely been successful. And in this context, Naran, your team at Accountability Labs were one of the few who explored beyond top-to-bottom approaches to find new ways to counter this problem. My first question for you today is, what inspired your interest to work in anti-corruption and then eventually feeling the need to explore innovative anti-corruption approaches in this scene? Thank you. I think I always like this question, but uh, it's one of the hardest things for me to explain what in terms of, you know, what inspired me to to become a, a one of the champions on anti-corruptions. I think I would uh, say I'm one of the victims of corruption. Just to give you a very short story of when my father you know, had six uh, children and struggling to feed us, uh, and he was looking for some opportunities. We were very uh, small and young, and that time he had to give a lot of favors to the people who had power and access and, and authorities. And I was wondering always, like, why he had to please uh, these people in order to get a job and, and to work. And he would ex- explain to me, you know, the thing is you have to, give favor to someone who is going to give you a job. So I feel bad about that. And also I sort of get a lot of inspiration from my academia and later on uh, engaging as a youth activist and seeing everywhere, you know, that things are not working, like education, health, and and then later on engaging with uh, this development work. 
and it's continued to inspire me to do something and and I, I found working on anti-corruption or I would not say anti-corruption is really about building integrity and, and promoting good governance. I like how you separated the two ideas, anti-corruption versus creating integrity. And we'll come back to that as we move on with the conversation. And thank you so much for sharing that personal story. I think that's something so many people in our country can relate to. So far in this series, I think we've adequately defined corruption and laid out its different forms with scholars. However, corruption is a concept that's truly embedded in the Nepali lexicon. And you've had this e- extensive experience working with diverse civil groups on the ground. So drawing from that, what have you observed are some of the common conceptions and misconceptions about corruption that you have come across so far? I think the first conception about corruption is corruption is everywhere and and it's 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 an act of unethical behavior it's it's about stealing public resources for private gain a political or institutional gain and and there's another conception about corruption is not just about you know stealing money or or any any public resources but it's also about people being dishonest mm-hmm. and and not able to fulfill their duties because they're not working hard, they're dishonest to their own duties, and they're misusing their entrusted power for personal gain. And the misconception is it's just against this, you know. Like when I say it's not just about money, it's also about, you know, stealing the time or you're not presenting your work dutifully and honestly and and it's also about you know there's a misconception that corruption is in some context and culture is actually efficient some people believe that you know what's wrong of of giving some favors and and paying some bribes and kickbacks if if it's going to facilitate your work it's simply a giving gratitude to somebody who has done so much of my work i went to the you know i went to the district administration office for my citizenship and that official has done so much for me people simply feel so uh, blessed and, 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 and they simply take it as, as a normal process of yeah. giving. So it's, it's really about accepting corrupt. The, uh, this sort of normalization. Normal acceptance and the normalization. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So that's what you see commonly. Absolutely. And also another misconception is that when you talk about corruption, the symptoms is actually the cause that makes people, institutions or system to be corrupt and having the lack of integrity. So the misconception is that if you find somebody, let's say a police officer is taking bribes and you simply caught that police officer and put it in jail and you see this, this is the end. But actually, we need to understand why that person is actually not fulfilling that duty. So why a school teacher is not going to school and teaching honestly and why a health worker is actually not working hard. We need to understand what are these underlying causes and what actually make that person's corrupt. So we can we can delve into this later. Yeah, on. definitely. And I'm glad that you brought up this idea of um, how corruption is not just a symptom, but has larger underlying causes that are going on, which is, I think, the perfect segue for my next question, which is, what do we really mean when we say innovation in anti-corruption? And this sort of reminds me of what you said at the really top, which is there's a difference between 
anti-corruption and integrity, which I think is a very innovative way of seeing this whole problem. And my question is, what are we leaving behind from previous practices as we embrace innovation in this pursuit? Like you mentioned very uh, early that corruption is everywhere and it has been there since civilization started. And anti-corruption efforts uh, also started since then. And it has always been, uh, like I said, looking at from the rule of law perspectives and in enforcing laws and rules and, and giving punishment to the to the corrupt and never thinking of how we can promote a positive behavior and really create that behavior as a role model to inspire, particularly the new generation, before they get entrenched in corrupt behaviors. And it has been so much of tick box exercise. Let me give you an example about a report card. What you do is you just go and try to spotlight uh, where the, you know, where the mistakes are, where the black spots are, and you're not really looking at where the shining lights are. You know that may be small, but that may play a big role in terms of instigating ideas of of anti-corruption in more positive and shifting values and and norms rather than just continue enforcing laws and rules that are not necessarily inspiring and creating incentives to everyone within and outside the power room. And when we talk about innovation, I think it is not really about creating new technology or it's not really a rocket science, but about doing things differently and recognizing the changes that happens in the anti-corruption space as well as in the corruption space. We have seen with the proliferation of technology and, you know, the globalizations and the connectivity. If you look at the corruption network, they're well-networked, they're very smart, and, you know, the corruption ecosystem is so efficient. But the anti-corruption work and ecosystem is not efficient, not connected. It has been working on silos and there's no collective approach. There's no, you know, the community approach. So I think what we need to revive when you talk about innovation is really leave all these, you know, isolated silos approach and, and follow through this connected collective approach. And that's where we can look for innovation. And innovation is, is nothing other than finding something that is going to work for you. It could be a technology-enabled innovation. It could be use of arts and, and the cultural practice that we have been doing. It could be anything. Uh, it could be something like uh, what we're doing now is creating a podcast, creating a conversation that is leading to some kind of change. Uh, in a way, we want to see the change in, in, in making governance working for, for all. Those are some very interesting observations. Moving forward with this conversation, I think I want to focus a bit more on dissecting global innovations that we've seen in anti-corruption and specifically focusing on the campaigns that you've worked One of the most groundbreaking updates in anti-corruption strategies was perhaps your Integrity Icon campaign. This was intriguing for me personally because we were taking on corruption with a positive attitude, trying to focus on amplifying the honest individuals, like you said, the bright stars, and practices Then, rather than fixating on what is corrupt. Can you share how the program worked in Nepal? What were its processes and how did you see the impacts unfold? Yeah, thank you for mentioning this. This is one of my favorite thing. Of course, I like it because I'm one of the, the co-founders of this idea. Actually, I have involved about, I don't know exactly, but seven, eight years on a so-called anti-corruption movement here and there in Nepal internationally. And I found it, it's nice to call out people. It's nice to same people. And it's nice to f- finger point 
um, if you can find the solution for for sustainable, you know, solution for forever. Otherwise, it's just boring. You know, you're just wasting your energy. Just continue keep finger pointing, you know, spotting on what is not working. So when we started Accountability Lab in in 2012, you know, we were looking for what we can do something new, something inspiring, something positive. And there's a different approach on anti-corruption. Anti anti-corruption shouldn't always be just just catching the bad person and and putting in a jail. There should be something something inspiring, which I mentioned before. So we came up with this name Integrity Idol. So we used to call it Integrity Idol before, but now we changed the name because of the American Idol just claimed, you know, their <laughs> copyrights and all. But the idea was, you know, we went to see different people, especially within government. And at the same time, we also talked to people from media, civil society, and my colleagues and friends. And everybody sort of wanted some positive narratives on on anti-corruption. It's really not just about fighting corruption, but also about building that personal accountability and integrity and really highlighting what is working and using this as a model to inspire more people. And it's really about sifting individual beliefs and values and to create an expectation that is integrity become an expectation that good behavior become an expectation versus you know there is always the fear there is always the blame game and there is always naming and shaming so the naming and faming approach we found it it's it's really helpful and it's really encouraging and it's really uh, it's it's really about appreciating the one that is working and using the power of individual honesty and integrity in fighting corruption. In a way, it's an anti-corruption uh, approach, but more positive. I think that the end game is to create a network of honest individuals within the system and an ecosystem around that. And they begin to build this conversation where they are and to use integrity icon as a means to transform you know, institutional integrity. So using them as a catalyst for change within the public service system. And now that you've said it out loud, it makes so much sense to make a, a network out of individuals who are striving to be honest. This particularly hit me because when we imagine corrupt individuals, we typically imagine a syndicate. They have a community of their own selves, but the ones who are trying to do it right are often isolated. So that's amazing. Another thing that popped in my head was that as you were trying to highlight and celebrate these integrity icons, you were also stigmatizing corruption and dishonest behavior, which for me ties back to the idea that corruption is so normalized in our societies. So amazing. Something that I really wanted to ask as a follow-up of this question is, corruption is something that is, as we say in our intro, it's painstakingly elusive and it's really hard to measure and define but so is integrity. So in in your process, in your campaign, how were you able to sort of shortlist these individuals and how were you able to measure your impacts? Uh, how, how were you able to maneuver over these very abstract ideas? It's hard. I mean, thank you. For, <laughs> it's hard, but we have developed various indicators for this. Just to give you a short answer, we, have, we looked at three basic framework. One is we looked at individuals. Uh, individual you know characters like how honest that person is and again it's so hard to to define honesty you may ask me another question like how do you define honesty it's really about the conversation that we we have with this selected nominees mm-hmm. and going through this long conversation and also getting a lot of reference from people 
could be a service seeker or other colleagues, media and civil society. So the first framework, what we look is looked within the individuals, like how honest that person, how dedicated that person looks, how approachable that person is, how humble that person looks. It's really a long process of first trying to understand that person as a person, right? So while we're looking at this approach, we first forget everything else. We forget about that person is a public servant or he or she is a joint secretary or, or undersecretary or, or officer or assistant. We just looked at how this person, you know, behave, behave well with the service seeker, with him or her colleagues and and how that person's actually recognized as an individual. So there's individual characteristics, the quality the value system and what that person likes, dislikes, how he or she behave with others. And the second one is we we go into the duties, the responsibilities, because the public servant is meant for certain duties and how that person is actually performing his or her duties. And that comes with the relationship with the public, relationship with departments, relationship with the stakeholders. It's really about the work domain, right? And how innovative that person is, right? Everybody does the same things because we don't expect a public servant, for example, a nurse, be so innovative. It's not always about innovation, but it's also about how that person is proactively seek solution to provide, to facilitate the public service delivery system. How inclusive that person is, is how humble that person is. As a public servant, whether that person is creating an environment that people who come for services feel welcoming, approachable, and respected, and everybody feel dignified while you are having interaction with that person in relation with the work. And the third domain we looked at is whether that person continue to do the good work with honesty or not. However, we have instances when you award someone today and tomorrow that person turn as a corrupt individuals, you, you don't really know how that person's behave in the future. You know, the person can be changed with the ambitions and, and environment and could be from the peer pressure or family pressure. So we would also have a lot of conversation and try to understand whether that person will, con- will continue this behavior or not. Then we have a panel of judges who are very experienced and well-respected people. And they also verify this information and talk to various people. And, and we try to get the best individuals. But there is a limitation for us. Definitely, definitely. And I think it would be unfair for anyone to expect you to have built this foolproof selection process anyways, because these are things that are perfected over time, right? But it's still amazing the effort that you've put in and the thought that goes into this procedure. I also wanted to know what are the direct and some of the indirect impacts that you've seen once you've brought in Integrity Icon? Of course, there are those that we've already spoken of, but... Also, in terms of inspiring successive individuals, have we seen cases of that sort? Yeah, like when we did this after one or two years, I remember this staff college who provide training to upcoming public servants. They called us and they said, hey, we would like to invite your integrity icon to tell their stories so that these upcoming public servants will have some kind of inspiration and also they will be connected and they can work as a mentor. So with this conversation with the staff college and with other institutions, what we have is, even if it's small, it's not big, but we started something called Inter- Integrity Innovation Lab. We also call it Integrity School because the school is aimed for young public servants who have a desire to grow within their administration 
and have ambitions, but they have some level of fears of whether I I get entrenched into all these kind of bad behaviors. And I don't want to retire with all these allegations and blames. I want to I want to continue to do good work and progress in the job, but I need to learn how to maintain integrity and accountability. So with their expectations, we started this school. And now we are having this school, which is going really well. There's a lot of young people coming and having conversation, learning from each other. And this integrity icon, because they are a bit experienced, have gone through lots of ups and downs, working within the bureaucracy. And they are actually mentoring these people, helping them by sharing their experiences. And and in sort of there is a dilemma whether you take a right decisions, you think this is legally right, but you know, at the same time, you're not convinced because this is unethical. Right? How do you balance it? How do you make a decisions so that you make the best decisions without hampering your relationship with your boss? But at the same time, you need to put public in the centers. So when you have a dilemma like that, you know, you can always call this integrity icon and, and, and you get mentorship. And, you know, when we started, the individuals were a bit hesitant. So it's, you know, very normal human behaviors. You, you cannot just go out and say, hey, my name is Kushi and I'm the most honest person. You know, somebody else has to always support what that person is about. And they're a bit hesitant to name themselves as an integrity icon mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the people and colleagues is like always laughing at them. And, oh, you are the most honest integrity icon. Oh, Wow. And now eventually, because we've been doing this for 10 years and they're like 45 integrity icons, along with these these young public servants, we call them integrity scholar and future integrity icons. And we also do integrity icon fellowship, targeting young people who are outside the government. So now coming a community, and I see that community is, is something bigger and impactful. Hi there. This is Somit Nirnipani from Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. We hope you're enjoying Parts by PEI. As you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources, and we rely on the support of our community to keep things going. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you're interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash Every little bit helps and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you talk about young people and the youth because they've been really prominent focus in your campaigns. And not just you, but even globally, we see that a lot of these bottom-up efforts against corruptions and other social problems are starting to focus on the youth with larger international programs starting to create forums and channeling funds, all focusing on the youth. Why do you think young people are taking the center stage for social issues like corruption? And maybe as you tackle this question, you can explain your own rationale as to why you were uh, looking into working with more youth. I think maybe it's 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 the need of a need of a time. Young people around the globe are are not satisfied in terms of what is working politically, and because by their age and ambition, they're always dynamic, you know, vibrant. Maybe for that reasons they want to see some change. 
And, um, I'm, and I'm sure you're speaking from your own personal experience absolutely, as a youth activist. Absolutely. But there's a lot of, I mean, there's big changes between my time when I was a young and, and today's young generation. That there's a vast difference. One thing is that today's young people are more entrepreneur. They have more access to information, access to technologies. You know, for example, when government banned TikTok, many... Many young people, my cousins, they're pissed off at the government because they were starting some business. They're selling some stuffs on TikTok and making their livelihoods, right? They were not, they're not dependent on their parents, even though their parents are very rich. So that when young people want to do something, and they're not getting a favorable environment, right? So they're not satisfied with the system. And they know that there is corruption, there is lack of accountability, there's no access to opportunity, access to, you know, information. And I think eventually they get frustrated and they want to get involved in this change process. We can also recall this experience with the last election. We could definitely see more young people coming to the to the seats because, you know, on one hand, the young people wanted to wanted to intervene. But but on the other hand, there, there was a growing frustration and, 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 and you know, people wanted to power their frustration with somebody they see as a potential force to change the society. That is one. That's why the young people, I think, they're more interested. And young people today are more connected than ever, probably, right? They have access. They learn from each other. You know, something that happens in South America today, you know, there's young people from here, Kathmandu, they can easily know what's going on there and there's influence from everywhere. And in my experience, I mean, the work that we are doing within Accountability Lab is when we talk about making governance work for people, it is always not about fighting corruption. It is always not about doing a lengthy workshop and conferences and so-called development, but it is also about are we investing on the right thing and are we thinking are we aligning our strategy and thoughts towards more entrepreneurial approach in fighting uh, all kind of social evils, right? That's why we come up with these ideas called accountability incubator, where we call young people who have ideas coming from anywhere, like someone, uh, you know, someone who knows how to play best guitar or, or a good musicians or artist or so we call young people who have ideas and we provide a support to build that ideas. That's why we call it accountpreneurs, the accountability entrepreneurs. So because we didn't focus much on entrepreneurship, we we became more vulnerable. We're always looking at the funding, you know, coming from donors and we're, we're doing great uh, and we're, we're so active and vibrant until we have money. Then everything gone, right? So what we can do something that is more entrepreneurial and based on somebody's passion, interest, and if organizations like us, if we begin to invest on innovative ideas coming from young people, it will definitely take up. And young people have more time to test ideas and, and to fail and to learn and to, to intervene. Definitely. Another aspect of innovation that I've observed is a focus on arts, culture and creative media. I'm seeing grants for street art, murals, literature, music, and performative arts in the cause of social in the cause of anti-corruption. And as I observe this, I think this is a very sharp detour from the traditional top-down approach that we previously had. What is the role of these previously undermined aspects of society in creating an effective social mobilization against corruption? Uh, the one thing, you know, the one risk is that if we are not supporting somebody who loves, let's say, music, then you are simply losing that person in the fight against corruption. Uh, 
If you just keep talking about let's fight against corruption, go to street, do some workshop, do some report cards, the person having interest in music will never come. And the person who loves you know, the arts and mural, they never come to the so-called anti-corruption movement. So you're literally alienating people, especially young people coming from diverse uh, backgrounds and skill sets and talents. So that's why it's bringing, you know, accepting all kind of ingredients. It could be music, films, and theaters, and using technology, new media. It's really, really important. And then you are creating a space for everyone, and you're creating a platform. You are using power of music to fight corruption by creating inspiring stories and shifting social values and norms. You're using arts in similar ways, and you are promoting social entrepreneurship that may create something, let's say, use of technology and tracking information and creating that information repository and, and enabling large number of people with the information they need to demand accountability. Mm-hmm. So I understand that it's not only about finding these new expressive ways of communicating the idea, but also bringing more people and in, more individuals into the movement by drawing into their own passions. Absolutely. I, I like your point about individual. My own observation on how this, this development work happened in Nepal, especially the citizen-led development or NGO-led development is more institutional. But what about individuals? And when we want to bring that true sense of civic movement, if you really want to bring the notion of civic movement, versus the NGO movement, we really need to create an environment for individuals. Every individual has something to contribute. Every individual has potential to bring changes. So I think uh, giving space for innovation and, and creativity is really about giving space for individuals, and especially individuals coming from unlikely networks and coming from marginalized communities who are often not considered as a community for change, rather a community for Sympathy. That point on marginalized communities, I understand that working with grassroots communities with an intention of empowering those who have been marginalized sounds incredible. But obviously, this task has its own challenges, especially in a country like Nepal, where there are multiple hierarchies that lock free interactions between people of different gender, caste groups, ethnicity, or even age groups. There's a huge divide between them. Additionally, the benefits of corruptions are distributed in ways that benefit those who are benefiting from the structures or social hierarchies already. So what are some of the challenges that came up as you worked with local level social mobilization and how were you able to thaw some of this social frigidity? I think one challenge that you rightly pointed out when you go to the community, let's say the marginal communities, what we notice is that people who never been in power structures, they always uh, think that politics is not our things and making decisions and is not part of our cup of tea. So people are literally, they are self-isolated. But the young people from the same communities, they want to change their own society and providing the support that they need in terms of how they want to engage with their own communities and, and also creating that voice and using that voice to continue to build on the structures. You know, the challenge is whether that community have the power and access to shift that. So I think that that's the biggest challenge. And the second challenge is whether there's a continued conversation in this process or not. If there is a way where community can assemble, meet, discuss, 
and develop appropriate ways to fight the stereotypes. And the third is uh, the communities that has been marginalized for so many years. They need a push. When I'm saying push, is not about like we are deciding what they want. It's really about giving them more support, helping them to lift up their voices. And here, the civil society, the media, the donors, and the government is to give more emphasis and in terms of allocating more resources and, and giving giving more opportunity to to the people. And if you give, if you continue giving more opportunity and and creating space, I'm you know I'm sure you'll get more you know innovations coming from that communities. Otherwise, we have never tried and tested, and never we're never ready to listen to these people. So, and in anti-corruption space, I think the more advanced affluent and the the more elite uh, societies are more corrupt versus you know the poor marginalized and you know very indigenous communities so there may be an opportunity where we can get uh, more insights and, and, and narratives on how we can be more honest more uh, ethical and more you know more natural in terms of creating that you know you know, open and, you know, inclusive governance structures. So, so the opportunity is also learning from these communities. As we're talking about opportunities, I know you, ju- you just mentioned the collaboration between governments, organizations, and citizens. What further opportunities do you see in innovation in the fight against corruption? What more can do you see can be done? Are there any exciting windows that you see are opening uh, for this cause? I think one is definite, obvious one is, you know, let's leverage technology, especially the information technology, including artificial intelligence. Sometimes it's so hard to predict, you know, the, 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 the level of and the intensity of corruption. So using technology will help you not just to access, not just to really collect uh, data and evidence, but also, you know, you know, have that analysis and to create a better anti-corruption strategy. And the second one is, you know, the second opportunity is I see this, you know, the, the connectivity that young people have globally through social media and, and, and other means is an opportunity and, 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 and you know, and and there's and there is also a new opportunity that I see, individual, you know, uh, individual either purely individual or associated with the media. They started started investigative, you know, reportings, which I think is a brilliant idea. And I have also seen that their investigative investigative reportings is also you know uptake by the civil society and other other stakeholders, which I think is really, really important, you know. Otherwise, uh, you have brilliant, you know, anti-corruption journalists who do a lot of hard work and getting the stories out, but then there's no follow-up. So that's why civil society needs to use this as a tools to advocate. And then another, and there's another last, I, I think is a good opportunity is that, um, and there, you know, the anti-corruption or, or, or building good governance is, is not, it doesn't work on silos and it is actually a, a cross-cutting approach. So you can apply this approach, you know, everywhere you are working, from gender to environment, climate change, any forms. And you can you, you can find hundreds of thousands of innovative ideas and, and the opportunity is to really uh, using these innovative ideas for your own, you know, sort of entrepreneurship and so that you become you become independent and, and employed and, and, you know, so there's the opportunity of leveraging this, you know, this, social movement but 
through the social movement, through this entrepreneurial approach. So with that, we have come to the end of our conversation. And before we end the conversation, I would like to give you some space for you to send out a message or a parting advice for individuals or organizations who are looking to contribute to anti-corruption efforts. I think, yeah, okay, let me think. Yeah, yeah sure, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> I think one would be like when people, when I go and talk to people, they think that they cannot do anything. They're helpless, they're powerless. But I'm, I'm not agreeing on that. So everybody has, has some potentials and, and, and they have power. Even if it's about creating a some some kind of conversation or or, or providing information or or you know asking question or, or or lodging some complaints about what's uh, about you about anything that you see is not going well is a big contribution. So I think there is a uh, you know there's a role on individuals. So let's continue doing keep you know let's continue play our role to provide you know, insights and stories and, and also, you know, the questions to the authorities. And the third is, you know, we have done so much individually and we are great and, you know, and now we need to translate that individual excellence to the, the collective excellence so that the anti-corruption work doesn't just become like a, there's a, there's a, there's a term, they call it collective action problem and principle as in problems. And the third is, Let's not let's never consider this corruption. You know, there's a there's a uh, you know there's a perception that people think oh, doing a little bit of you know corruption is not a bad idea. It's actually great incentives. No, you may see some incentives now, but eventually it will erode trust in in our society. It will undermine development and it will undermine uh, the human potentials. So the corruption is always bad, right? And the third message message is that, I mean, third or fourth or fifth, I don't know, whatever, uh, how many messages so far. But uh, anyway, I, I, I just forget. It's all right if yeah, that's yeah. the last one. I, I think that's a great note to end with. Thank you so much, Naren, for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's good to, have, good to have this kind of conversation with you. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best for your future endeavors. And thank you. And I really like your podcast. And, and thank you for, you know, creating a series on this topic. Oftentimes people don't like to, you know, talk about uh, corruption and anti-corruption. And to be honest, it's not easy. And to be honest, it's not it's not so easy to 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 give you the facts and 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 and, and you know it's not something like you're building roads and and you know you know create you know building a transmission line or or, or or distributing medicines and it's really about sifting values and creating institutions and 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 and, and empowering a generation so thank you thank you for doing this congratulations all right thank you <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Kush's conversation with Narayan on inviting innovation in anti-corruption strategies. Today's episode was produced by Nirjan Rai with support from Kushi Hang, Ridesh Sapkota and me, Sonia Jimmy. The episode was recorded at PEI studio and was edited by Ridesh Sapkota and Nirjan Rai. 
Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Jindabad. If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at tweet to pei That's tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI. And on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit pei.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Sonia. We'll see you soon in our next episode.